friends, let us now listen to Brother Mel Caparos, pastor of Living Word Christian Churches of Cebu International. ready to go to God's word so may I request each one of us to please rise from our seats as we come before the Lord in prayer please thank you father our heavenly father we thank you and bless you for this wonderful Sunday morning oh God thank you for allowing us to just praise and worship you indeed Lord you have no rivals there's only one and only true living God and you are the one that we're worshiping right now and we know, Father, that you are in our midst, O oh God, and none of your purposes could be frustrated. And we know that you have laid out great purposes for your people today. You decide to minister to each and every one of them. And so I pray, Father, that you will open our hearts and open our minds. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. I submit myself to you as your instrument and as your servant. I pray, O oh God, that you will give me the words that will minister to your people, I trust, Lord, that you will give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. I pray that the Holy Spirit will just move mightily in our midst and we just bind and cast out the works of the enemy in Jesus' name. And we pray for a hedge of angels around us, O Lord. We give you all the thanks and praise in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Let's be seated in the presence of the Lord. I've entitled this morning's sermon, The Moment of Truth. Now, just to do a little review, just so we don't get lost in the details of the latter part of chapter 6 and then later on in chapter 7, um, let me just review for you the things that we have talked about for the past few Sundays. As some Bible scholars have actually done a chiastic structure of the whole book of Esther. Now, I don't have the benefit of time to be able to explain to you what a chiastic structure is. But the only reason why I'm bringing it out is that a chiastic structure shows what the book's emphasis is all about. And with the chiastic structure that has been done by some Bible scholars, it has been discovered that the focal point of this whole book is actually the conflict between Mordecai and Haman. This is the focal point or the central point of this book. Now the question is, why did they enter into conflict? Well, we were talking about Haman. Haman happens to be the prime minister of the Medo-Persian Empire, and he was hungry for power. He was hungry for fame. He was hungry for popularity. And so he wanted everybody to practically kowtow to him, prostrate before him, bow down before him. But there was one man who would not acquiesce to him, and that was Mordecai. Mordecai, of course, was a Jew. And the reason why... He did not want to bow before Haman was he thought this was a sort of homage or even worship that was being done to a human being. Now obviously Mordecai being a Jew could not do that because he was a believer of Yahweh. And as a result of that, there ensued the conflict that you and I have been talking about for the past few Sundays. And so what happened was Haman actually talked to the king to come up with a decree. And in this decree, what he wanted is that all of the Jews would be annihilated. Not just Mordecai, but the entire Jewish race. I made mention of the fact that this was really a critical point, not only in the history of the nation of Israel, but a critical point in the history of mankind. And why do I say that? I say that because 
if Haman's plans actually succeeded, the whole Jewish race would be eliminated. They would be annihilated. And therefore, the promise of the seed, the Messiah, the Savior, the Savior coming from the tribe of Judah and from the nation of Israel would not have happened. And that is why this is really a critical point in the history of Israel, but not only a critical point in the history of Israel, but a critical point in the history of the world as well. So thankfully, God in His providential dealings worked out certain situations for the deliverance of the nation of Israel. Of course, you and I know that one of the things that God did beforehand is that He installed Esther to become the queen of the Medo-Persian Empire, deposing uh, the other queen, Queen Vashti, because she had disobeyed the king. And of course, we know that Queen Esther was a Jew. So that was the first movement that we see here. But aside from that, we find that the king had insomnia one particular night. And so because he could not sleep, he told the librarian to bring before him the chronicles. And when he read the chronicles, interestingly, he discovered that Mordecai, the Jew, actually unraveled a plot for his assassination. And because of this noble deed that Mordecai had done on behalf of the king, the king sought to reward uh, Mordecai immediately. And so what happened was Haman actually entered the court, but actually he had evil intentions because previous to this, he had made gallows 75 feet high. Now, Brother Jojo gave me a very important detail because he researched on how high is 75 feet. Just to give us an idea, it's something like an eight-story building. All right? So he wanted Mordecai to be hanged uh, on a height which measures uh, something like uh, eight stories high. And this was his intention when he entered the court of the king. But then again, the king wanted to reward Mordecai. And so the king asked uh, Haman this question to the person whom, whom the king wants to honor, what should I be doing? And Haman was flattered by that question. Why? Because he thought, well, this is going to be for me. So he said to the, to the man that the king wants to honor, you should give him a royal robe. You should let him ride on a royal horse. And let it be proclaimed in the city square that this is the man whom the king wants to honor. To his surprise, that honor was actually not reserved for him but it was reserved for Mordecai. And so that's what happened here. And Haman was given the duty of placing the robe on, uh, on Mordecai and letting him ride on that horse and declaring in the whole city square that this is the man whom the king wants to honor. So the Bible tells us that after that event, Haman covers his face in humiliation he was absolutely embarrassed by all that had happened. And so he gathers uh, his friends and he talks to his wife. And then his wife asks whether uh, Mordecai was of Jewish origin. And Zeresh, the wife, together with the friends said, this is going to be the beginning of your downfall. So we will pick up the story from that particular point. But... Obviously, there were certain questions that arose as we studied uh, the first six chapters. There were many questions that arose. Now, let me just present to you some of the questions that arose. One would be this. What would happen to the Jews who were in exile still in the Medo-Persian kingdom? A second question would be, what would happen to the Jews who had now returned to the land of Canaan, the land of Israel? Third question is, what is going to happen to the plan of salvation? The fourth question would be, would a Messiah and Savior still come to the world? Fifth question, what would be the fate 
of Mordecai the Jew, the protagonist in this story. Sixth question, what would happen to Esther, the queen? Because she herself was also a Jew. Next question would be, would Esther's request for the decree made by Haman to be, uh, to be revoked be granted by the king? Another question would be, what is going to happen to Haman? Now, these questions would be answered in chapter 7. That's the chapter you and I will be studying today. But actually, the story begins in the latter part of chapter 6. You could say that chapter 7 is the moment of truth, the moment when all these questions that arose would now be answered. Now, the scenes described in the narrative could actually be broken into three neat parts, which I would like to show to you once again on the screen, all right? So the first part is the queen's petition, which we will find in the latter part of chapter 6, but ends all the way to chapter 7, verse 4. And then we're going to talk about the queen's revelation in chapter 7, 5, and also verse 6. And finally, in the last three verses, we find the king's wrath and Haman's destruction. So that's how the narrative will go uh, this morning. So let's dive into the queen's petition, first of all, in chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. It says, while they were still talking with him. Now, what, who were these people who were talking with Haman? Again, we go back to the story. It was Zeresh and his friends, all right, the friends of Haman, and they were saying, you're going to fall. This is going to be now your downfall. You're going down, Haman. That was what they were saying. And so obviously, downcast was the soul of this man, Haman. But at the moment when Haman's wife and friends were predicting his downfall, he was immediately swept away into the presence of the king and queen. This is what verse 14 says. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. Now, I think the mood of Haman somewhat changed when he was called to be in the presence of the king and queen because previous to this, there was already an earlier banquet and he felt greatly honored to be in the presence of the king and the queen. And it so happened that the queen herself was the one who had prepared this banquet for them. So I think what happened was a change of mood, a sudden change of mood on the part of Haman. He began to be excited again. I believe this was a sort of consolation to him and he probably thought, well, after all, I have the favor of the king and the queen, and therefore this provides some stability and security in my position. And hopefully the prediction of his wife that he would, he would fall would not happen. Because after all, he had the favor of the king and the queen. And so here's what happens at the beginning of chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Now the king and Haman came to drink wine with Esther the queen. So the scene begins with a very pleasant, relaxed, and enjoyable one. As usual, as in the first banquet, there was wine. There was lots of wine. And there was lots of food. There were viands that were prepared at that time. And so... They probably had their usual banter, uh, the king and, and Haman had their usual banter at this time. But all of a sudden, in verse 2, we find the king takes on a more serious tone. It says in verse 2, And the king said to Esther on the second day, also as they drank their wine at the banquet, What is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you, and what is your request? Even to half of the kingdom, it shall be done. And so now the scene takes a more serious tone because the king really wanted to go straight to the point and find out what it was that was troubling Queen Esther. And once again, for the third time, not only does he ask what Esther wants, 
But he makes a promise, even to half of the kingdom, I shall grant it to you. Now, we told uh, in the previous sermons that this was just an idiomatic expression. We're not to take this literally. But the point is, the king was so willing to give to Esther whatever it is that she wanted. Now, I'm sure Haman was eavesdropping, eavesdropping into the conversation. And being privy to this conversation, he must have felt really honored. And he was probably thinking, can you imagine what's happening right now? Something that is so private between the king and the queen, I'm now hearing this conversation. And once again, he probably felt that he was such a special and favored person. But here's what happens. There was a terrifying turn of events because the conversation took on a different turn. And here's what happens. Let's tune in to verses 3 and 4 at this time. It says, Then Queen Esther replied, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given me as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. Now, I would like you to note the precise words and wisdom that Esther employed in the conversation. She first of all asked for her own salvation, for her own life. She was saying, I'm making a petition for my own life. Now, she did not straight away say, Lord, you need to save my people. But she says, you need to save me first of all, king. Now, I felt that was really wise on her part. I'll explain to you in a bit. But you will notice here, that she was quite brainy. She was really smart in her choice of words, which tells us that as believers in Christ, we should also be wise in the employment of the words that we use. As the Bible says, we are to be gentle as doves, but wise as serpents. And so again, there's something noble about wisdom. And how do we get wisdom? Well, the book of Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And obviously, Esther here was a woman who was a worshiper of the Lord, and God was giving her wisdom. Now, likewise, here's another thing I'd like you to know. She presented her position, rather, or petition, not in a presumptive and forceful way. She did not present it in a presumptive and forceful way. She was very humble in her making this request. Now, let me just repeat what she said. This is what she said. Now, if we had only been sold as slaves, men and women, I would have remained silent. For the trouble would not be commensurate with the annoyance to the king. So you will notice she was very smart. She was very wise in her dealings with the king. She was very, very careful. She did not approach the king in arrogance. She did not approach the king in a forceful way. Actually, when you do a little study of Esther, you will learn how to use language in a way that somehow melts the hearts of people. And the Bible indeed speaks about the employment of gentle words, even averting possible anger. And the Bible actually says in the book of Ephesians that we should season our speech with salt. Now, what does salt do, by the way, brothers and sisters? What does salt do? Why do we salt the food that we eat? Well, it's a preservative, right? So what do you think the Bible means when it says that we are to season our speech with salt? Does it mean that before we speak, we put a tablespoon of salt in our mouth? I don't think that's what it means. But it just means that we need to be careful with our words. Some people are very proud and they say, I speak my mind. And you know what? 
When you are that kind of a person, you're bound to make a lot of mistakes. There's a Chinese proverb that says, less talk, less sin. And oftentimes, we're really guilty of being very rash and very impulsive with our words. Sometimes our words are not well thought of. They're not well thought of. And the point I'd really like to share to you here is that what happened here was that Esther was actually measuring her words. She was measuring her words. She was, she was measuring her statements with the king. And I think there's really wisdom in doing this, most especially in dealing with human relationships. And I'm talking about any kind of human relationship, whether it's, it's a marriage relationship or a brother and sister relationship, a sibling relationship, or even relationships in church. We need to employ wisdom when using uh, our own language. We need to be choosy and picky. Now, why do I say that it was a smart thing for her to first of all mention her own salvation and her own deliverance before the deliverance of the Jews? My thinking is this. By saying that her life was under threat, meant to say, that whoever it was who sought the death of the queen must also be seeking the death of the king as well. Because here's another question that would arise from that. Why would anyone want the queen to be eliminated if there was no ambitious agenda on the part of the person who planned this. Now, of course, let me just say this, Haman did not know that the queen was a Jew. So Haman was not really planning to kill the king. But then again, just try to imagine what was happening here in the thought processes of the king. He must have been connecting the dots at this time. And he was probably thinking, if somebody wants to kill my queen, then maybe this person also wants to kill me. So I believe this was what was happening. And you see here the wisdom of Mordecai as well as God because Mordecai told Esther not to disclose her national identity. Don't reveal that you are a Jew. And once again, we see the wisdom of their ways here because obviously they were able to hold, to hold their cards close to their chest. And this was something that came out powerfully later on. Also, please remember that the king had just been reminded of the assassination plot revealed by Mordecai as he read the Chronicles when he had insomnia. So the kind of environment, the mental environment of the king at that particular time was he was probably paranoid. Because then again, he remembered his two doorkeepers who wanted to kill him. And so obviously this was running through his mind and maybe he was even asking the question, is it possible that somebody else wants to kill me? Is it possible that there is another ouster plot that is being hatched? And so right now what happened was with this revelation, the king was now beginning to connect the dots. And unfortunately, it was all pointing towards Haman. And here's where you and I see the sovereignty of God. Here's where you and I see the providential dealings of God. And here's where you and I see the perfect justice of God. Amen? Here was a man, Haman, who wanted the destruction of an entire race, an entire nation. So you could just imagine the kind of wickedness, the kind of perversion, the kind of anger, the kind of pride this man had. And God was not going to allow any of the plans of Haman to actually take place or be consummated. And that's why, once again, this is really a very powerful lesson in so far as the poetic justice of God. Amen? Sometimes justice actually tarries. Sometimes justice actually is delayed. And oftentimes we ask God, just like Habakkuk, sometimes we ask God, Lord, where are you in all of this? 
Where is justice, O God? Why are you allowing these evil things to take place? But then again, the book of Esther reveals to us that God is a God of perfect justice. Amen? Could you say to your neighbor, God is a God of perfect justice. And that's very important. That's why hopefully none of us are on the side of oppressors. Hopefully none of us are on the side of those who are doing injustice to others. Because God will pay. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, said the Lord. He will repay those who do evil. So let it be that you are not the oppressor. Let it be that you are not the one doing injustice. Let it be that you are the victim. Because you know God will bring deliverance and God will bring about justice. A lot of people go through a lot of pain because of the many circumstances that take place in their lives. And once again, sometimes it's, it's dealt uh, by, by other people. And we just have to trust the Lord and wait upon God because He will put things in order. So let's move on in verses 5 and 6 as we take a look at the queen's revelation at this time. Obviously, the angry curiosity of the king had now been greatly aroused. And so he now inquires from Esther. So verses 5 and 6 goes, Then King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, asked Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he who would... Who would presume to do thus? Esther said, notice again the careful words that she uses, the precise words that she uses, a foe and an enemy is this wicked Haman. Then Haman became terrified before the king and the queen. Now notice the calculated words that she uses. She calls Haman what? A foe and a what? An enemy. In other words, what do you think was Esther planting in the mind of King Xerxes? What he was really saying or what she was really saying to King Xerxes was this. King Haman is not just an enemy of the Jews. He is not just an enemy of Mordecai. He is not just my enemy. But King, know this, he is also your enemy. So that was the point of the calculated words that Queen Esther was employing. The implication, once again, is Haman was an enemy of the king himself. Again, smart choice of words. What does this tell you? Esther was not just beautiful. She was, she was brainy. She was smart. She was beauty and brains at the same time. Now, let's put the beauty and the brains within context, all right? What was at stake here? What was at stake here was the lives of millions of people who could be annihilated. That was what was at stake here. And yet, in the goodness and graciousness of God, He raises up a woman, becomes a queen, and He uses the beauty as well as the brains of this woman to bring about deliverance for the nation of Israel. Now, why do I point that out? I point that out because, brothers and sisters, God has given us certain gifts in life. And those gifts might be beauty or intelligence or resources or connections. Whatever it is, I'm sure that God has blessed you in special ways. Now, the big question is, how are you employing those assets or those gifts that God has given to you? Because again, very important, God saved us and redeemed us so that you and I could fulfill His purposes. In the case of Esther, the purpose was the deliverance of the nation of Israel. In our case, God might have a different purpose. But then again, the question is, how are you using the gifts, the resources, and the assets that God has given to you? Most especially in the sharing of the gospel. Can I give you a little guilt trip this morning? Let me just go back to the survey. 
that we just had a while ago, back to the Bible, wherein it says that only 14% of us are actually sharing the gospel. So out of the 2,500 members of Living Word, only 350 are actively sharing the gospel. Now here's my big question for you, brothers and sisters. Where is the 2,150? Where is the 2,150? And I think I need to tell you that because I need to remind you the Great Commission is a commandment. It is not optional on our part. When the Bible says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you, and lo, I shall be with you unto this age. Remember this, brothers and sisters, that is not optional on our part. We have a responsibility to spread the gospel. Spread the gospel through our speech, using our mouth, using our resources, using our connections. That's the purpose. What is our priority in this Christian life? Matthew chapter 6 says, Seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto us. That is our priority. God saved us and redeemed us for higher purposes. God did not save us so that we could just have a good life. God did not save us just so we could enjoy the prosperity that He gives to us. God did not save us so that we could just be able to secure the future of our family. And oftentimes, however, our hearts and our minds are so focused on earthly things, we're not even thinking about heaven we don't even have the compassion and the burden for lost souls and whatever gifts that God has given to us, whatever resources God has given to us, whatever assets God has given to us, they are right now in a, in a state of stagnancy. Nothing is happening. So as I was talking to this Back to the Bible um, staff who did this survey, this is his observation. These were his own words. It seems like in your church, there are many spectators rather than participants. Can I say that once again? Lovingly, I'm speaking the truth in love. He said, it seems like in your church, there are many spectators and very few participants. And when I heard that, ouch, it was really painful to know that. Because once again, God has called us for purposes, for higher purposes. And the big question is, what are we doing? Are we simply bench warmers? Are we just content about coming here Sunday after Sunday? What about the souls that are lost? What about the people who do not know Jesus Christ? What about our friends? What about our relatives? What about our office mates? Is there no effort whatsoever on our part to even share the gospel? And again, this is so important because I, I'm putting things in proper context here. Because Esther was not just brainy and beautiful. She was employing whatever gifts God has given to her to be able to bring about the deliverance of her own people. And once again, indeed, Mordecai was spot on when he said Esther had come to her royal position as queen for such a time as this. For such a time as as this. Esther's coming into the scene and becoming a queen was God's perfect timing. It was God's divine appointment. And friends, we have to ask ourselves the question, what are we doing with the divine appointments that God is giving to us? Because I am so sure that there are so many divine appointments in our lives. I recall David Geisler, 
He said that oftentimes, although he is tired coming from a conference, when he rides a plane, sometimes he finds himself praying to the Lord, Lord, I'm actually very tired right now. But Lord, no matter how tired I am, if you want me to share the gospel to somebody, then I'm going to do it no matter how tired I am. And so he asked God for a confirmation. He says, Lord, if you really want me to talk to somebody about the gospel, could they please initiate the conversation? And every time, and he says, every time, people always initiate the conversation. And so he's always able to share the gospel to people. I also recall Doug Nichols, who was here, uh, who did a missions conference for us, uh, I think a couple of years back. You know, he takes every opportunity to share the gospel. And he always brings with him tracks, gospel tracks, so that if he does not have the opportunity to be able to sit down and talk to a person, at least he would give that person a gospel track. And that's what he does. And he would, he would sit down with, with the homeless people. He, he, would, he would buy food for homeless people, and he would sit down with them. He would sit down with his homeless children, and he would share the gospel, share a meal, share the gospel. And so my point simply is let's not miss the import of this particular story because this is not a story of Catriona Gray. This is not a story of Pia Wurzbach. No, this is a story of deliverance. This is a story wherein this woman followed her divine appointment. You know, there's a wonderful movie. I, I'm not sure if you can still watch it. Maybe it's no longer in the cinemas. It's, the title of the movie is Kazon's Game. I'm not sure if some of you have watched it, but my wife and I watched it because we like historical movies, most especially movies that talk about our own history. You know, sometimes our problem as Filipinos, we don't even know our history. And because we don't know our history, we don't have this, this sense of patriotism. We don't even know who our heroes are or what our heroes did. Probably the only thing we know about our heroes is that we find them in postcards. But do we really know them? Do we know the sacrifices that they have made? Well, I really like what Manuel L. Quezon did, our very first president. At that particular time, we were still under the Americans. We were an American colony at that time. So obviously, although we had our own president, the approval for certain major things was still under the American government. And one of the things that had to be approved by the American government was the number of visas that would be issued for people to come into our country. Manuel L. Quezon, however, had a heart for the Jews. In fact, even before he rescued about 1,200 Jews, he had already rescued some Jews who were in China. And they were brought to the Philippines. And then he heard about the persecution of the Jews that was taking place in Europe. And so he made the plan to bring in 10,000 Jews into the Philippines. Unfortunately, the American government was not even willing to give 200 visas. To make a long story short, Manuel L. Quezon makes an appeal to the Filipino people talking about this particular situation. And at that time, we were voting because we were part of the American government. We were voting as well. Did you know that? And so Manuel L. Quezon thought, well, you're talking about 17 million votes. So because of his speech, the American government was somehow pressured to now issue visas. Make a long story short, 1,000 200 visas were approved. And so 1,200 Jews found themselves into the shores of the Philippines. And the plan was to bring in 10,000 Jews. In fact, the plan was to plant the Jews 
in Mindanao. Unfortunately, World War II broke out and the plan never took place. Manuel L. Quezon, of course, died of tuberculosis. But why that story? Because it's a story of divine appointment. Do you think that Manuel L. Quezon, at random, just thought of saving the Jews? No, I believe that God, in His sovereignty and in His providence, was actually saving and delivering the Jews from sure death. Because that is what they would have met if they did not land in the shores of the Philippines. Manuel L. Quezon fulfilled his divine appointment. And we're not even sure if he was a Christian. But you and I are believers. You and I are Christians. We cannot afford to miss our divine appointments because when the gates of heaven are open for us, when our time to go home comes, God is going to ask us, what have you done with your life? My son, what have you done with your life? My daughter, what have you done with your life? I hope we do not answer God and say, Lord, I had, I had five bank accounts. And Lord, in, in, in each of those accounts, I had one million pesos, Lord. And Lord, I was able to send my children to the best schools, Lord. In fact, some of them were able to finish their college in Harvard University, in Princeton University. Lord, isn't that wonderful? And Lord, I came out in Sunstar because I was, I was doing a lot of political things and, and I came out in Sunstar. I was, I was part of the headlines. Lord, those were the things that I did. Those were my achievements. What do you have to show God at the end of your life. Because remember this, every birthday we celebrate, we're getting closer to the day of our death. Can I say that once again? I hope I'm not sounding so, um, so horrifying to you, but that's the truth. Every day you celebrate your birthday, you're getting closer to your day of death. And the big question I need to ask you is, what have you been doing with your life? Because Esther did something about her life. So, what happens? So finally, the revelation takes place. And the king was angry. And let's find out about the king's wrath and Haman's destruction in chapter 7, beginning at verse 7, please. With this revelation of Haman, the king arose in his anger from drinking wine. Now think about this. He was already drinking wine. You know how it is when you're drunk already. And remember, we're talking about the fact that this man was a wine lover. He was probably a drunkard. And at this time, he was probably really drunk at this time. So can you imagine with all the things that were being placed in his mind by Esther... It was really causing him to have this boiling rage already. So it says the king arose in his anger from drinking wine. Why do you think the narrator includes that detail? Because it's important with the story. And it says he went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm had been determined against him by the king. The king could not believe his ears when Queen Esther revealed that Haman was an enemy and a foe. Why? Because this was his prime minister. This was his drinking body. This was his second in command. This was his most trusted official. And so he could not understand this betrayal. He could not understand why in the world he would want to kill his queen. And so the king left in anger probably to process the information, but at the same time to make plans on what to do with Haman. The king must have thought to himself, after all the favors and influence and power I have given to Haman, this is how he pays me. 
He must have been thinking, how could he possibly think of killing my wife? My wife is the apple of my eye. I love her so much. Why would he want to kill my wife? And probably he was thinking, if he wants my queen eliminated, he must have plans to destroy me as well. Maybe this guy has grand ambitions. Maybe he's, he's not satisfied by, by being simply number two. Maybe he wants to be number one. Maybe he wants to be king. And so all of these things were inundating the mind of the king and he was really in boiling rage. What has happened here was the tables were now turned from a violent offensive stance. Now, Haman was on the defensive. From a loud barking dog, he was now an itoy. The tables had been turned. He's now on the defensive and he's now begging for his life. Haman knew that the, that the statements of Esther to the king meant sure death for him. He knew he was dead meat. So verse 8 reads, Now when the king returned from the palace garden into the place where they were drinking wine, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now the normal conversation in the Middle East is normally you're, you're reclining on a chair. And so what Haman did was, was he, he fell on the couch where Esther was, which was really immodest. Then the king said, will he even assault the queen with me in the house? So when the king returns, he chances upon Haman falling on the couch. And, and in his perception, this was really immodest. Or he was probably even thinking, this guy can't even wait to kill my wife. Now he wants to assault my wife right here in the palace, right here where I am? How can he do this? So when, when, when the people, when the officials heard that, you know what they did? They covered the face of Haman. What, what's, what's the importance of that? What is the significance of that? Well, let me just read to you from commentary critical and explanatory on the whole Bible. This is what it says. The import of this striking action is that a criminal is unworthy any longer to look on the face of the king and hence when malefactors are consigned to their doom in Persia, the first thing is to cover the face with a veil or a napkin. And that only meant one thing, patay kang bata ka. Not only meant sure death on the part of Haman. So here's what happens in verse 9. It says, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs who were before the king, said, Behold, indeed, the gallows standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on behalf of the king. Now, is it possible that Harbona also had a grudge against uh, Haman? It's possible with the statements that he was making here, he was really trying to stir up the anger in the heart of the king. So the king was informed that Haman prepared gallows for Mordecai, who was the one who actually divulged the assassination plot. So the king must have been thinking, this guy, Haman, wants to kill my wife, and he also wants to kill Mordecai. And who is Mordecai? Mordecai is the Jew who unraveled the assassination plot so that my life was spared. So if he wants to kill both of them, probably in the mind of King Xerxes, he was thinking, this guy is also after my own life. He wants to eliminate all these important people. Now, of course, Haman had no plans to kill the king. But because of the circumstantial evidences that the king was connecting, he thought or he perceived that this guy wanted to kill him as well. So what do I see here? I see the genius of God. 
I see the genius of God in orchestrating everything to perfection for the deliverance of the Jews. And not only the deliverance of the Jews, our own salvation. Remember what I've been talking about for the past few Sundays? If the entire Jewish race was eliminated, if they were all annihilated, there would be no Israel, there would be no tribe of Judah, there would be no line of David, and with no line of David, no Israel, no tribe of Judah, there would be no Messiah, there would be no Savior, and there would be no salvation at all. It's really interesting how God was thinking all the way down to our generation that God knew through his omniscience that he needed to do something about the situation, that critical situation. Otherwise, you and I would not even have this discussion. Otherwise, you and I would not even have a gospel to talk about. There's going to be no good news for us. Everything is going to be bad news for us. And you know what? Without Christianity, where would you and I be? Probably we would land in another religion. And what would that religion do in our case? Nothing. Why? Because here's what the Bible says. There is only one way. There's only one mediator between God and men. And who is that? The man, Christ Jesus. The book of Acts says... That there is no salvation in any other name, in heaven or in earth, except the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus said himself in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now Jesus did not say, I am one of the truths, or I am one of the lives, or I am one of the ways. Jesus did not say there are many buses leading all the way to heaven. That's not what he said. He said, I'm your only chance. I am your only hope. The only way your name is going to be written in the book of life is through me. The only way your sins are going to be cleansed, past, present, and future, is by my atoning death at the cross. Otherwise, you have no chance, you have no hope, because the standard of God is perfection. It's really so interesting that all the details that you find in all the narratives that you find in the scriptures, they're all connected to this one very powerful event, the presentation of the Messiah, the death of the Messiah, and the resurrection of the Messiah. That's why we thank God that our God is not a stupid God. Our God is omniscient. Our God is all-knowing. Amen? He is all-knowing and He is all-wise and He is all-powerful. It doesn't get any better than that. That's why we thank God because, once again, through the genius of the Lord, He will never allow Satan to. To win. Amen? Satan will never win. Amen? He will never ever win against God. And so in the latter part of verse 9 it says, And the king said, Hang him on it. There's even a rhyme to it, isn't it? Hang Haman on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows which he had prepared. For Mordecai and the king's anger subsided. The tables had been turned. Haman's glory ends up where? In the gallows. Eight stories high. He was impaled on a stake for everybody to see. People walking down all the main roads would see this man impaled on a stake. Here we find the end of the man of the devil. And we should add the end of the plan of Satan to destroy the grand plan of salvation. Haman wanted exaltation. What did he get? Humiliation instead. 75 feet high, eight stories high. And again, that teaches us a lesson on humility. God, listen well, God will always exalt the humble. 
In the same way that he would certainly exalt the humble, he would abase those who are proud. Amen? Because you know one thing? He hates pride. You know one thing? You know why this all, this, this, all this disorder and chaos has happened in the world? You know where it all began? It all began in the pride of the heart of Lucifer. That's where it all started. He was an anointed cherub of God. And yet, because he wanted the throne of God himself, it set us off into a course of chaos and disorder all over the world. That's why we see what we, we are seeing right now. All the disorder and all the chaos. Haman sought glory for himself and wanted to destroy everything on his path that he perceived was a hindrance to his self-worship. What he didn't know was that he was an instrument of Satan. Satan was using his pride and his anger to destroy the people of God and destroy God's plan of salvation. But then again, God is never frustrated. In his sovereignty, in his providence, God will always work behind the scenes. He will connect all those circumstances, events, people, situations, and even create the proper atmosphere and environment to achieve all of his good purposes. Our God will never, ever be defeated. Amen. He will never, ever be defeated. So let's bow our heads and close our eyes at this time. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and bless you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for the powerful lessons that we are learning through the life of Esther and Mordecai. And Lord, let it not be that we miss out on our divine appointments. Lord, we are so sure that you have laid out all those purposes each and every day of our lives. But we somehow miss our divine appointments because we're not paying attention to you. We're not listening to the Holy Spirit. We're not praying to you enough. We're not reading our Bibles and applying it in our lives. And so we've missed out probably more than a thousand divine moments in our lives which we could have put to good use. How blessed we are, O oh God, that you've given us many gifts. Some have been given beauty just like Esther. Some have been given brains like Esther. Some have been given administrative skills like Mordecai. And many of us, Lord, have have abilities and assets and resources and connections. Lord, let us not put them to waste. Deal with our hearts, O oh God. Because, Lord, at the end of our days, you're going to ask us, what have you done, my son? What have you done, my daughter? And, Lord, we hope that we have already answered to you. We hope we can say, Lord, with the gifts that you've given to me, Lord, I've used them all. Let's pray that we will live our lives passionately and that we will not become complacent and spiritually fat and lazy. Let's pray that God will convict us and put a burden in our hearts. Let us pray that God might bring about a revival in our hearts. Oh, Lord, we, we come to you in all humility. You see, Lord, our unfaithfulness to you. You see, Lord, our lack of conviction, our lack of burden. Please forgive us, oh God. Please forgive us for the things that we've wasted. And we pray, Father, that we will waste our lives no longer. And that we will say to the evil one, to the devil, enough. 
I'm tired of living my life for myself, Lord. Allow us to live our lives for you and for you alone. Not for self, not for anything else, but for you and you alone. God, you know you can, you can change our hearts. And that's what we're praying for right now. We thank you also for the opportunity to give our tithes, our grace gifts, and our offerings. Lord, use them for the glory of your holy name. And whatever has been achieved today, yours alone is the glory, praises, and thanks. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give the Lord a big hand, please.